Good evening, everyone. This is our last lecture in the 2020 series of Online Academy lectures. And my name is Peter Kariva. I'm the CEO and president of the Aquarium of Pacific. And tonight, I'm also your speaker. So I get to introduce myself as well as um, deliver this talk. Uh, I don't really want to spend much time on myself other than to say that uh, my whole career has been one of a scientist who studies ecology and nature. So it's something that I, I seek to understand and that I value. And I've also worked extensively in education and conservation. Now, the motivation for this talk is, um, it's really a little bit personal. It, it, in moving here to the aquarium, it, it makes you think a lot about What's the role, aquarium's role in the community, the nation, and connecting people to, to nature? And then the COVID pandemic and the shutdown and how we all you know, tend to be cooped up has also made me think a lot about what it means to be cooped up and what are we, what are we missing out on? So I'm not an expert on the topics I'm about to speak about. But I've been doing a lot of reading over the last few months, and these are areas that I plan to do some research in, and hope the, you know, the aquarium will be part of it. And, and I want to share some of these ideas with you. I'm going to break it up into three parts, and let's start with the first part. So nature, you know, we're part of nature, and maybe that's the wrong way to put it. We are nature. We're a species, just like Sea otters and whales and robins and earthworms were a species that lives in the natural world. And we've always had a connection to nature. And in some sense, we'll never lose it. We can't because we're a biological organism. The very first art that we have records of, petroglyphs from 10,000 years ago, the art includes depictions of humans and wild animals animals that were hunted, animals that hunted us, or spiritual animals. And I like to think about, when, when, when you think about us and, 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 and nature, it's such an essence of us. You all know at some level that you're connected to nature. My, the experience I like to call to mind is, I bet every one of you has had some occasion, some night, some late night, dark, wind, something, a city street, it could be a uh, forest, and you're walking by yourself, and you feel the hairs on the back of your neck. They sort of prickle. They prickle. You feel it. It's a physical sensation. That's you as prey. That's a relic of the fact that for other than the last 1,000 years, we were prey for animals embedded in nature. Fast forwarding from petroglyphs and humans as prey, seeking shelter in caves, in the medieval times, you know, our relationship to nature uh, had other dimensions. And one of them was thinking of nature as healing. So it was pretty standard for hospitals to have courtyards and in those courtyards, gardens and trees and pathways where patients would go outdoors, and it was strongly felt 
that being there in those gardens, in those courtyards, helped them heal. And thinking of those courtyards and those gardens, it brings up something we all recognize is that we have tamed or domesticated much of nature. So many of you are um, pet owners, either cats or dogs. Those are domesticated animals. Of course, dogs came from wolves anywhere from 20,000 to 40,000 years ago and have been integral to our success as a species. Cats are thought to be domesticated in China and in the Middle East, and, and they were so beloved that they were you know, buried as mummies with their families. More functional, of course, is agriculture. And in agriculture, we, we all know that the crops have been domesticated, um, not as dramatic, it doesn't look as dramatic as cats or dogs, but often just to make them easier to harvest. So the picture here is of wild and domesticated wheat, and the big differences in the seeds and how they're released or not released. And finally, what's the most dominant animal on the planet in terms of weight? The most dominant animal on the planet in terms of weight? It's cows. Nothing comes close. There's 1.5 billion cows, and you add all that up, and no species comes close to that in terms of weight on the planet. And of course, they were domesticated um, 10,000 years ago. So long history of taming and domesticating nature. Another more recent trend, you know, those agricultural and those cows and cat domestications are thousands and thousands of years ago. But a more recent trend is this transition from rural to urban. And these are data from the U.S. But, you know, a little over 100 years ago, 55% of the U.S. population was rural. So the majority of Americans lived in the country. 2020, 85% live in cities, highly urban, and only 16, or less than 16% in the country. Big change, living in the country to cities. So... What does that mean? What does that mean? I mean, maybe you have grandparents or great-grandparents. You've heard stories about, uh, you know, the good old days. But as a, as, a, as a parent, you think about, what does all this mean for my kids? Another big transition is how do your children spend their time at play? How do they spend your, their time at play? And Think back to yourself when you were a child. How many hours did you spend outside playing? And how many hours do your children spend outside playing? There's been a huge shift in this so that college freshmen today, when they were growing up, they spent less than an hour a week playing. Much, much less, but like 35 minutes or 45 minutes a week. That's one-tenth what I spent uh, playing, and probably much less than you spent playing outdoors as you were growing up. A little bit more of a cliche, so not being outdoors playing in woods or streams, that's obviously not being connected to nature. Uh, but another thing that's talked about on, um, you know, 
in the media, in magazines, and so forth, is this connection we have, you know, the connection we have to our, our cell phones and the media. The, these data are from uh, Pew studies. They do them every couple of years. One in five Americans essentially never unplug. They're online almost constantly. And for ages 18 to 29, it's 36% that are online almost constantly. And of course, there's all sorts of discourse and research and questioning about this, about what does this mean for emotional development and social friends and dating and so forth. But framed from a nature perspective, that time that you're looking at a screen is time that you're not out in nature. So these observations, these observations of these long-term trends from being prey to taming nature, domesticating it, having agriculture, from being rural to being urban, from spending time outside playing to being on our screens all the time, they've led to a lot of people asking the question, are we suffering a nature deficit disorder? I mean, does this have consequences? It's, the change is undeniable, but does it mean anything? And Last Child in the Woods is a really, really well-known book. It led to um, forming up a nonprofit that looks at the impact of not playing in the woods with kids. But it's something that's on the minds of many people all over the world. I, I think especially um, parents when they're thinking about bringing up their, their kids. Let me pause here and um, invite some questions about this sort of panorama I painted of humans and nature and these trends that have been happening. Hey, Peter, thank you for this presentation. My name is Susan Holcomb. I work at the IOES. I'm just wondering, um, in 20 years, what do you think the typical nature experience is going to be um, for Americans? Are we going to be even more detached than we are now? You know, I wish I knew the answer to that, but I, but I, um, I think the sense of this talk is we're at a, you know, a fork in the road. Essentially, the trend has been towards more and more detachment for nature, but there's all this research and these books being written by journalists that say, uh-oh, there could be severe consequences. Are we going to do anything about it? So we're either going to end up 20 years like Blade Runner and dystopian, or we're going to end up with cities, with parks, and you know, wonderful equal access. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer, but we're clearly at a juncture. Um, the one positive thing I'd say is society is beginning to invest in nature. Hi, Peter. It's um, I'm Ezekiel, and uh, this is my dog Chance. Um, I don't, I don't think I could make it through this pandemic time of isolation without my, my dog. So I'm just wondering if you can comment on anything about if there's any science or if you have any thoughts about like the connection we have with our dogs. I'm convinced that he makes me feel better. I'm not sure if I make him feel better, but I know he makes me feel good and better. And even just making random eye contact with him feels pretty good. Well, you know, Ezekiel, I've seen you with Chance, and you make him feel better, I'm pretty sure of it. But, um, so there, there's two points I want to make with respect to your question. One, really quickly, there, 
it's probably what you're relating to. There's an abundance of research that shows through this, these thousands of years of coevolution with dogs, we really do have something special with them. So that when we look into their eyes and they look back into our eyes, but the dogs and the humans get elevated levels of oxytocin. That's kind of the love hormone, the really feel-good hormone. Very strong, and you can evidence that we genuinely make each other feel good. But to your point about in these particular times, um, if you look at sales of puppies, that there has been a big spike in the general population going out and getting you know, dogs and getting pets, I think, to mitigate all the downside of the isolation of the pandemic. Hey, Peter, this is Stephanie and um, Louie. And I am really curious about the issues. I've got two tween or, you know, young, young kids um, about devices and being online and doing more digital work rather than more tactile physical work. And um, I'm curious about substitutes for nature. So right now, a lot of people can't get out into nature as easily as they might have been um, with the pandemic. So it's even more challenging. Are there substitutes, are those legitimate? Watching nature films or viewing photos of nature, are those substitutes for nature or do you need to fully experience it and be immersed to get the benefits of nature? So um, I, I like, Stephanie, your, your use of the word substitute because as far as I've read, the studies that have been done compare like different things outside the window different posters, um, you know, different tanks in an aquarium, different videos, so videos that have urban site, videos that have um, some nature, videos of wild nature. I have not seen any research that asked the precise question you had, and that research, I think you all know the design, that research would have a control, nothing, a video of nature, and then real nature. And ideally, the video of nature would be the same as the real nature. And that would be one way of asking the question. The second way of being asking the question is, well, that's unrealistic. Let's, with the videos, really crank up the nature and have something really exciting. So it might be the control, the nature that you could find in your backyard, in your neighborhood, and then a video of polar bears or wolves or, you know, lions and tigers and asking what your emotional, psychological, and physiological response is to them. To my knowledge, those experiments haven't been done, uh, and that's what we need to answer your question. Okay, great. That was an interesting discussion with those questions. Now I want to look at a little bit of the science, you know, so this notion of nature deficit disorder. I mean, how real is it? What is it? What are the what are the tangible consequences of it? Or is it just nostalgia? You know, a hundred years ago, we spent five hours a week hand scrubbing our clothes, and now we spend 30 minutes machine washing our clothes. Does that mean that there's a hand washing deficit disorder? So how real is this? Well, in my readings, I'm going to just kind of 
skim and, and talk quickly about the papers I found most fascinating and most intriguing that are just beginning to get at this question. And the very first sort of a seminal paper, um, some of you may have heard about this, was uh, hospital recovery. And this was a study done in a, in a suburban hospital in Pennsylvania, pretty small hospital, about 200 beds. And the basic design was the, two, the treatments, if you, were, if you will, are what you see when you look out your window. You see either brick, wall, another building, or you'll see trees, greenery. Everything else is the same. The rooms are the same size, they're painted the same, they're the same nurses, it's the same hospital. Not only that, it's the same surgery. It was just one particular surgery, gallbladder surgery. Everything's the same except what you see out the window. And then you match the patients in terms of gender and age and health going into the operation. So it might be an overweight 60-year-old male in a room seeing bricks and an overweight 60-year-old male in a room seeing trees. So they're matched. Not a great sample size, but still, the way everything is controlled, kind of fascinating. Um, I want to go back. The results were astonishing. This was published in a major journal, Science, in 1984, the results were, looked at two things, how much painkillers you take. By day two, those patients that were looking at trees cut their painkiller in half, how much they took. And that cut in half continued for day two, three, four, and five if they stayed there. They took less painkiller, not only that, that tree view meant that you got out from the hospital one day earlier, exactly the same surgery, pretty much the same person, only you had trees and the other person had bricks. That paper did not get that much attention. Um, the author is Roger Ulrich, he's a geographer, and I, I wonder if it's because a geographer was writing about a health effect as opposed to a doctor or a, a medical scientist that didn't get enough attention. Um, it's a pretty neat study. Something, another type of study in this, in this expanding literature is what I call sort of city surveys. This is done in Toronto. Toronto was a strategic place to look at the effect of nature, if you will, on health because Canada has um, universal health care, so you don't have this inequity in health care. And the, and the treatment is you're living in a city and your city has no trees or many trees. And when you take this survey, how healthy do you see? And the paper concludes that just 10 trees extra on a block is equivalent to making you health-wise sort of be seven years younger. Kind of an interesting approach. Another approach is to kind of expose individuals with different nature experiences to a controlled stress. So there's a study done in Germany and the basic idea was to look at individuals that could have grown up in one or three situations, in a big city, in a village or small town, or totally rurally, like on a farm or something. And then expose them to the same stress, in this case taking an exam, 
uh, in a room and being stressed to hurry up and finish the exam and then measuring a bunch of physiological responses. And the result of this was that if you had grown up in the country, you handled it, you're handled it stress better as measured by heart rate, physiology, um, uh, brain imaging, and cortisols or stress hormones. Another study, and this is really one of my favorite studies from this expanding literature, because it really gets at a significant problem. The, all these other research, th these are interesting research, but they're the research that's um, asking a kind of a fundamental question, but in this one, it's nursing homes. One of the biggest problems in nursing homes is that the residents of them suffer from severe depression. And the percentage of residents that are depressed uh, in studies of nursing homes ranges from 11% to 78%. Uh, so that's pretty severe incidence of depression. And this asked, by looking at different nursing homes, if anything about the surrounding exposure to nature could reduce the depression. And it turned out it could. And it was a really strong link, especially if you look just within the first 250 meters away from the nursing home, the amount of trees significantly reduced depression. Um, that's a big deal finding because operating on that, it, it's practical to perhaps change the landscaping around nursing homes and reduce depression. Of course, the gold standard in science is a controlled experiment with the subjects randomly assigned to the treat. All the previous research I talked about was sort of taking advantage of data uh, collected on people in nursing homes, people living in Toronto, uh, students taking a test who had grown up in different situations. This case was a PhD thesis done by a fellow Greg Brotman who after getting his PhD, he's now a, he was a brilliant young scientist. He's now a professor at University of Washington. Um, I know him because I served on his committee. But he wanted to you know, conduct this like an ex, you know, a really elegant experiment. And the basic idea was take physiological and psychological measurements on, on individuals, volunteers, before and after. And the before and after was before and after a walk down a city street and before and after a walk in nature. And these are the two walks. The top one, you know, this is not wild nature with um, you having to worry about being a prey. This is a running, biking, whatever path. It, just uh, outside Stanford on what is called the dish in the hill there. And then down a, a city street in Palo Alto, which is, and that's an urban blight street either. So 50 minute walk in either of those situations. And what's the effect on your emotional state and your cognitive abilities? And essentially the nature walk uh, helped. It made you ruminate less, which less negative. You'd perform better at mathematics and memory. Um, and so by any measure, that 50 minute walk along that path up the hill versus down the street made a difference. And then um, the final sort of experimental study I want to talk about 
in this literature. Uh, and I like this study because it kind of frames the question I think we all would want to get at in this new literature, in these new ideas. So if nature is good for you, then maybe if you think about a nature pill, how many pills do you have to take? Take them every day? Two pills? One pill? Three pills? Four pills? Is there a dose response? I mean, th that's how we normally think of medicine. And so this is a study done at University of Michigan where they got volunteers as an eight-week study. Um, they ended up only having 33 individuals in this um, study. But the basic setup was this. They told the individuals that, that, that they were investigating the value of nature experiences on their health. Uh, and they just asked all the individuals to three times a week have a nature experience, but they didn't dictate exactly what the nature experience was. And then they measured uh, what happened as a function of the dosage of these nature, nature pills, if you will. And this graph, um, uh, it's kind of messy and a little bit technical, but basically this is one of the measurements. The vertical axis is cortisol, which is uh, a stress response. The horizontal axis is the length of the nature experience because each of these 33 individuals could have a different length of time in nature. And by the way, they didn't allow running or jogging or exercise to count as it. It's a little bit complicated because they're accounting for the effects of the day. But the bottom line is that they did find a dose response so that the longer your nature experience in terms of minutes, so you can think of minutes as a dose of nature experience, from zero to 80 was the maximum they had, the better reduction in cortisol and stress and in, in, in other features. One of the neat things about this study is that uh, in the discussion, they described their results in a way that I think all of us um, would like to have them described to us. They basically said, okay, there's some data that show that, uh, you know, going out in nature, having this nature experience, relieves stress, puts you in a better mood, etc. But I'm busy. I'm really busy. I don't have time. How much should I go out each day in nature and get the maximum benefit? They were able to ask that question um, with their data, and they basically found that in 20-minute to 30-minute doses of nature experience, uh, you got almost a 20% decrease in stress and improvement in mood and all of that. So that would be, if you were time-limited, that would be what you would do. And so the, the, uh, the last thing, uh, this might seem to be unrelated, but it is, in my opinion, a related literature. And I'm sure many of you who have, have been exposed to this, pretty widely known that having pets uh, is good for your health. You know, there's studies that look at cardiovascular, emotional health, um, how many visits to a doctor you have to make a year. It's, a, it's sort of common when people do go into nursing homes to get them pets. Uh, can be good for veterans, so that, that having pets 
uh, is good for you in many ways. Also good for you in surprising ways of promoting community. So you go out, take a walk with your dog, and you know, people talk to you. You're part of a community. And I actually think that we should view that as a nature experience in a sense. It's not technological. It's an other species, an other organism, and we're interacting as two different species. So um, let's take a pause here and uh, listen. And what, what sort of quest what questions do you have uh, about the science here, the data, the the sort of portfolio of data I presented here of many different forms about the benefits of a nature experience. So questions? Peter, I have a question. Uh, I am Tomas. I'm with my dog Lola, who's running around. But I have a question because last week I went to the dentist and I hate going to the dentist. And in front of uh, the dentist office, in front of the chair, you know, where you sit, they had a huge plasma TV and they were showcasing a video with coral reefs and, you know, something really cool. So that got me thinking when you were talking about that experiment they did in 1984, which is a curious year, by the way, uh, of that publication. But it got me thinking if then the, the, the policy lesson that we take from that is that maybe we should replace all windows in hospitals with plasma TVs showcasing, I don't know, Discovery Channel or something to get people to heal faster. What do you think about that? Well, you know, I know, Thomas, you asked that both seriously and playfully, but it's not such a silly question because um, it's practical. And by that, I mean, I mean, we all know that you know the music that's played in elevator. There's, there, there's all sorts of ways that um, society manipulates our moods with music and images and so forth. And in a hospital setting, given that 1984 paper, it isn't unreasonable to invest in plasma TVs that show gorgeous, peaceful nature and seeing if it improves, like that gallbladder study, how fast you recover. It's a really practical experiment to, to do. I'm sort of surprised, to my knowledge, that it hasn't been done because it is actionable. It, it, you know, it, and maybe preferable to a drug treatment or you know, oxycodone or something like that that you give to people. Hi, Peter and everybody. This is Adina from the Aquarium of the Pacific. I know that the, at the aquarium, we actually do live stream uh, many of our exhibits into Miller Children's Hospital. Yeah. We've been told that it helps them. I'm wondering, Peter, if you're aware of any experiments or studies that have been done on people visiting zoos or aquariums. You know, Adina, uh, in the reading that uh, I've been doing and um, Claire and Michelle have been doing over the last few weeks, we haven't actually looked at the medical literature. You bringing up the Miller uh, Hospital is a really good case. I, th I think we need to look in medical journals, New England Journal of Medicine and medical journals, um, to see what has been done. Uh, it hasn't appeared in sort of the nature journals, if you will. But uh, and if it hasn't been done, be a great research project. Absolutely terrific research project. Oh, hi, my name's Jenny um, and I work on ocean issues and you've talked nature about nature mostly from two perspectives, right? Uh, forests or greenery and pets. And I'm curious whether you know about any studies that relate to other uh, nature systems such as oceans. Jenny, it's good to see you. Um, 
I miss working with you. But uh, so what we know, there, there aren't as many studies with oceans, but one of the things that turns up repeatedly, there are all these studies of what are called charismatic species, and there are many ways of quantifying that. And in the top 10 list of charismatic species, consistently whales and sharks turn up. And here at the aquarium, so there is this, you know, this attraction to them, generally in the public. And when here at the aquarium, when you look at what people respond to, they respond to penguins and otters and seals. I mean, they, you, you just see that that's where the kids flock to. I don't think there have been the studies like those city studies, you know, those neighborhood studies, because it's hard to think about how to do them with the ocean. You know, it might be like distance from the beach, but that it's got so much else going on. Um, I hope, you know, in the future we can use the aquarium, though, as a, as a platform for asking some of these questions, and then maybe even using kind of like field trips when kids can go out again and, and take field trips to explore that. But not a very big literature other than we love whales and people are fascinated with sharks. Uh, sorry to ask another question, but um, I'm just curious if, the, if you've come across any interesting studies on like the olfactory responses. Like I know they talked about forest bathing and kind of the olfactory responses and even thinking about going to the aquarium or the oceans that that smell just triggers relief and and the it, stuff that the brain can't even process, but the olfactory system triggers in people. Yeah, so you're, you know, it's interesting you brought up the forest bathing because that's where most of the work has been done. And Japan has a really strong tradition now of, of the healing powers of spending bathing in the forest and the olfactory thought to be part of it. Um, I don't know of studies exactly what you're looking for, but I, I, but I think, Ezekiel, that some of it is that we're drawn to odors that remind us of our home habitat. So if we grew up near the ocean, the smell of that salt breeze. If we grew up in a pine forest, the smell of that pine forest. So I'm not sure it's the, it's the, um, it's the nature odor, it's the memory of our birthplace and our home uh, that some of us experience. Okay, I think um, we, we need to move on, and this is the final part of the talk. Uh, and I know some of my answers weren't satisfying, but, but, but part of the issue, you notice why I use this word nature. I bet each of you, if I asked you to write down a sheet of paper what you thought nature was, you'd each have different definitions, and even what you wanted to experience in nature. And that's part of the problem of interpreting this literature is our different thoughts about what really counts as nature. So this final part, having done all this reading, I now really wanted to apply it in some sense to the aquarium, public policy, community engagement, you know, the, the, the job and vision I, I have for the Aquarium of Pacific. And the key notion I want to explore is what do we call nature and to what extent do aquaria and zoos fulfill a real need? Some people might think that you know, only the Arctic Circle or the tundra with polar bears or the Amazon jungle or a wild um, 
Serengeti with tigers and elephants, that that's nature. But you know, all those papers I talked about earlier in that previous section, they had nature in the title. None of them dealt with those types of nature. Their nature was trees, gardens, grasslands, very, very not uh, polar bears. And increasingly, um, in the US, there's investment being made uh, in cities in expanding parks. California had a big ballot measure to give money to cities to put parks where um, there weren't parks to serve communities that were underserved. And when I first showed up at UCLA, the job I had previous to the aquarium, a team of 20, 21-year-old graduating seniors at UCLA did a really fascinating study because the money had just been allocated to invest in these parks. And this was a really diverse group of kids. And they wanted to do a study and asked, well, what do people want? What does the LA community want in a park? And they had many ways of asking this. I'm just going to give you one result. One of the ways is showing people four images and asking them, what did they prefer? Which nature, which of these four landscapes, if you will, or settings of nature would you select? Would you want? So that's the question that they asked. And they asked it of uh, people both at urban parks already, and they asked it, that might be biased because the people who are at parks might just like the type of thing that they're at, but they also asked it of people at the Department of Motor Vehicles who, have, who are glad to do it because they're standing in line. This is a complicated slide. I just want to draw your attention to, to one part of it. So. These are the different pictures. That upper left-hand corner is what I'm calling wild. And so that's yellow. That's the yellow bars in this graph. So upper left-hand, wild, yellow bars. And the vertical axis is the percent of respondents that favored, that thought that was, that's what they wanted. That was their ideal nature. And divided it up into, by ethnicity. So the furthest to the left, is non-Hispanic white, and then you move to Hispanic, Asian, black, African-American. So the non-Hispanic white, look at that yellow bar. 65%, that's the non-Hispanic white preference in contrast to where the yellow bar stands for all the other ethnic groups. So there, what type of, that matters. Public money is being spent. Should it be spent on what, on what really is what mainly the non-Hispanic whites prefer, that upper left, or could it be spent in other types of nature parks? Another significant point, especially in this era where we've really come to recognize in no way have we addressed social and racial inequity is that it applies to our access to nature. So the percentages here are what percent of people of the population by ethnicity, what percent of the population 
live in areas that is deprived by nature. And deprived by nature means less than the median, less, less than the average for the state. Fewer than one in four whites live, non-Hispanic um, whites live in areas deprived of nature. And as you move to communities of color, much more predominance being deprived of nature. The aquarium, but not just this aquarium, these data would apply to aquaria across the US and zoos, we get a very diverse community. The pie chart reflects the diversity, but to summarize it quickly in terms of our visitor diversity is 43% of our visitors are non-Hispanic white, and the other 50% communities of color, Contrast that with Yosemite, 71% non-Hispanic white, and Yellowstone, sort of iconic American nature, 82% are non-Hispanic white. So aquaria are a place that really draw the broader population and give them a chance to experience nature. But of course, you might back up and say, well, it's not really nature. You know, come on, you're not seeing buffalo and wolves and rhinos. And do any of those studies speak to it? Thus far, in, in my readings and research, there may be articles we haven't discovered yet, but thus far, but I found one study of an aquaria in UK, uh, in Manchester, and basically their experimental design was this. Bring kids in, um, they don't see anything, any exhibits, they're taken to a little curtain place, and physiological, and psychological measurements are taken, and they're not seeing anything, and then they raise the curtain, and they get to either see a pretty boring tank, a tank with a few fish, or a tank with a really rich complexity. And what they find is, in this aquarium setting, after only 10 minutes, 10 minutes of looking in a tank, they had an effect after five minutes, too, that when you look at their emotional response, the more stocked the tank was, in other words, the, the richer its biology or nature, the greater improvement in mood and positivity. So the scale is this standard scale called valence. It goes from minus five, that means really bad mood. Plus five means really good mood. And um, you're getting the average state a big change, this is the change that you experience, the improvement in your mood as a function of what you see in the tanks. So that tells you um, that aquaria, and I, I'm sure that it zoos uh, as well, and in gardens, you know, these urban settings, giving kids access to it, access to it matters. By coincidence, you know, when, when this COVID hit, by coincidence, um, one of the students, that, that study I mentioned earlier, go back to it quickly. This study, one of the students in that graduating class is from Singapore, and she ends up pretty high up now in the in Singapore park system. I stay in touch with her, and I asked her, Kathleen Yap is her name, I asked her, so what's, what's going on in Singapore with COVID? right after we shut down our parks. 
right? Here's the fascinating thing. Singapore considered nature experiences absolutely essential. They didn't close them at all. They invested a lot of money in signage and patrols to make people adhere to the mask rules. And this is a photo from Singapore from during COVID. And the upper curve there, the data here shows that um, these are curves that plot the number cumulative, the total number of cases per million people. And the US is the top curve, just taking off. And the Singapore is the bottom curve, uh, stayed level, where they never even thought about closing their parks. And I wish uh, we had the same attitude, frankly, for our aquaria, because um, in the outdoor sense, they afford many of the benefits that we've been talking about and um, would have made a difference. So what do I make of all this? I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is a beginning exploration to try to sort out this huge and pretty new literature about nature and health and psychology and equity and social justice. Well, one thing I think we all sense is this COVID closure. This COVID closure um, has been devastating. I mean, it sort of grinds us down and we feel cooped up. And I think many people uh, just have an urge to get out. And we will get out. And the other thing that I've learned, so I, just, I, I feel this really tangible physical urge to get out from the COVID closure, is that there's a real need to relax, to, to really embrace a diversity of ideas about nature. And when you think about what we're all going through and the change, I think you might pause and ask yourself this question. What have you gone without as a result of COVID that you find most upsetting? And I think for many of us, what we have gone without has been social contact and social cohesion and being able to get out and experience nature. So we need each other and we need nature and that is really what aquaria and zoos all across the country are about. And they're accessible to everyone. They're affordable and accessible to everyone. You could, it's not just about ethnicity. It could be about wealth. It could be about you're not mobile. It could be about, you know, it's hard for you to get around. Uh, you could still have this connection. And instead of questions, what I want to leave you with this evening is a, sh is a short video that we put together of, you know, people here at the aquarium interacting with our animals, our nature. And um, I think if, when you watch this, you'll feel inspired. Um, I hope you'd want to come here and bring your kids here. And there's something really special about we humans, people, interacting with nature and animals and our dogs and our cats and gardening. There's something really special about it. You know, I, did, I take people around to try to raise funds for the aquarium. I get so inspired and energized when I see kids, you know, with their faces pressed 
to a tank or just really looking at our animals engrossed. When I see those same kids in a mall shopping, that does not inspire me. So enjoy the video, and I look forward to a better 2021 for all of us. Take care.